My name is Christopher Preble. I'm the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Thank you all for being here. Um, and thanks especially to our conference staff here at Cato who help us put on these terrific events. Uh, welcome to those of you watching online at Cato.org. For some time now, scholars and commentators have been aware of a worrisome gap between public and elite opinion with respect to U.S. foreign policy. Um, elites generally embraced a strategy of primacy, also called global engagement or uh, deep, deep engagement, global hegemony, pick your word, uh, in which U.S. military power was deployed to underwrite global security, advance global prosperity and human rights. Uh, the United States, in this sense, uh, is the main provider of global public goods, the global policeman, or as Michael Mandelbaum put it in a famous book, uh, Goliath. The United States was Goliath. Um, in contrast to foreign policy elites, uh, clear majorities of Americans uh, writ large believe that the U.S. military existed chiefly to defend the United States and its economic and security interests, not necessarily those of others. Um, however, these slightly different impulses did often work hand in hand because after all, a large and active military that was focused mostly on U.S. security and prosperity uh, typically helped others. Um, so they did not always come into conflict. But uh, if and when Americans sensed that U.S. foreign policy was harmful to uh, the ends of U.S. Uh, peace and security, public support collapsed. We saw this, for example, in 1993 after the mission, the humanitarian mission in Somalia. We also saw it in 2004 when the war in Iraq uh, failed to play out as that war's advocates uh, claimed that it would. Writing in 2005, uh, Michael Mandelbaum noted, quote, American citizens have never been asked to ratify their country's status as the principal supplier of international public goods. If they were asked explicitly to do so, he predicted, they would un undoubtedly ask in turn whether the United States ought to contribute as much to providing them and the other countries as little. To make sacrifices largely for the benefit of others counts as charity, and for Americans as for other people, charity begins at home. The American role in the world, he concluded, may depend in part on Americans not scrutinizing it too closely, unquote. Well, thanks in part to Donald J. Trump, I don't think we can continue to count on the American people not scrutinizing U.S. foreign policy too closely. Trump exploited the gap between the elites and the public at large with ruthless efficiency on his path to the GOP nomination and then in his general election win over Hillary Clinton. And he's continued to shine the light on the public versus elite divide as president. Increasingly, however, we see not merely a disconnect between the public and elites, but also among different age cohorts within the American electorate. And the age cohort most skeptical of American global leadership, at least as it has been practiced for the past several decades, is the millennial generation, those men and women born between 1981 and 1996. A survey by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs in 2012 noted, quote, Millennials are much less alarmed about major threats facing the country, particularly international terrorism, Islamic fundamentalism, and the development of China as a world power, and are less supportive of an activist approach to foreign, policy, foreign affairs than older Americans. In 2015, the Cato Institute released this white paper, white paper, Millennials and U.S. Foreign Policy, which concluded, among other things, millennials perceive the world as significantly less threatening than their elders do, 
are more supportive of international cooperation than prior generations and are also far less supportive of the use of military force. And today, for the first time, we introduce a melding of the minds, as it were, or at least a joining of forces uh, as the project director for that 2012 Chicago Council study, Dina Smeltz, and one of the co-authors of that Cato study that I just mentioned, Trevor Thrall, have together collaborated with William Ruger of the Charles Koch Foundation to drill down more deeply into the looming clash of, clash of generations, question mark, intergenerational change and American foreign policy views. I will say that word only once. Um, so I'd like to thank, uh, while I'm at it, and, and as we get started, so this report is being released for the first time today. Those of you here in the auditorium can access, we have copies for you. Uh, those of you who are watching online, we should be able to access this on, online. Um, so please check it out. Uh, while I uh, while I'm here, I'd like to thank and acknowledge Eric Gopner, a visiting research fellow here at Cato. He is the co-author with Trevor of the 2015 Cato study I mentioned and a co-author of this latest study. And uh, Eric organized today's event. And I also want to give credit to Craig Kafura, a research associate at the Chicago Council who also worked on this report. But let me tell you a little bit more about the three people that I have here on the stage with me uh, and we'll get our discussion started. Uh, first, I have uh, just to my left, Dina Smeltz has over 25 years of experience designing and fielding international social and political surveys. She joined the Chicago Council on Global Affairs as Senior Fellow on Public Opinion and Foreign Policy in 2012. She oversees the Council's well-known annual survey of American attitudes towards foreign policy and has authored and co-authored many of the analyses based on that work. Uh, before then, she was the Director of Research in the Middle East and South Asia Division and Analyst Director of the European Division in the Bureau of Intelligence and Research at the U.S. State Department's Office of Research. And she conducted over 100 surveys in these regions and regularly briefed senior government officials on key research findings. Smeltz has published commentary on public opinion and international issues in the Washington Post, Real Clear World, Foreign Policy, and the Council's survey blog, Running Numbers. She has an MA from the University of Michigan and a bachelor's degree from Penn State. Uh, next is William Ruger. He's the Vice President of Research and Policy at the Charles Koch Institute and Vice President for Research and Policy at the Charles Koch Foundation. He is also a research fellow in foreign policy studies here at Cato. Uh, Will is the author of Milton Friedman and co-author of two books on state politics, including Freedom in the 50 States, an Index of Personal and Economic Freedom. He's a frequent guest on television and radio, and his op-eds have appeared in several national publications, including the New York Times, Time, USA Today, many others. Uh, he is currently an officer in the U.S. Navy Reserve and a veteran of the Go uh, Afghan War. He earned his Ph.D. in politics from Brandeis University and his bachelor's degree from the College of William and Mary. And lastly, my colleague Trevor Thrall. Uh, Trevor is a senior fellow here at Cato and also associate professor at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University where he teaches courses in international security, political communication, and U.S. military intervention. He co-edited with Benjamin H. Friedman, U.S. Grand Strategy in the 21st Century, The Case for Restraint. Uh, his other edited books include American Foreign Policy and the Politics of Fear, and Why Did the United States Invade Iraq? Prior to arriving at George Mason, Trevor was an associate professor at the University of Michigan Dearborn, where he directed the Master of Public Policy and Master of Public Administration programs. He received his Ph.D. in political science 
from MIT. And so with that, I'll let uh, Dina get us started. Thank you. Good morning, everybody, and thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I want to thank Cato for hosting us and Chris for moderating, and a real hearty sense of gratitude to um, Will Ruger and CKI for helping to fund this survey and uh, the research that we've done, and to Trevor for having the great idea for us to collaborate and pull Will and Eric and Craig in for the analysis. Um, so far, the Chicago Council on, on Global Affairs is um, pretty well known for its surveys, uh, annual survey now of public opinion um, among Americans. What do everyday Americans think our foreign policy should be? And we've been doing this since 1974. What we've noticed, foreign policy used to be an area where actually Americans were pretty much in agreement on a lot of the broad contours. But since 2001, after the war on terrorism and then even more so after the invasion of Iraq in 2003, we started to see really widening partisan divisions on many of these issues. And so um, our group got together and thought, wondered whether there were also growing generational divisions, because they're somewhat related to partisanship divisions as well. So that was the genesis of our study. Um, we basically looked back at uh, all the data and the generations that we focused on are those that are in, um, I think, hopefully you can see the shaded blue four generations from millennials to the silent generation. So these are the six generations that currently make up the US population, but we had, uh, we didn't have enough data for the youngest and the very oldest to look at completely over time and across different partisan divisions. So we focused on these four. Um, the, Silent generation were those who grew up um, while under the Truman presidencies, Eisenhower, Kennedy years. They tend to have conservative views on government. They tend to favor the Republican Party more than the Democratic Party, except on Social Security. And then uh, Paul Taylor, who wrote a great book called uh, The Next America, says that the icons of that generation are Clint Eastwood, um, uh, Neil Armstrong and Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> Woman in there. Um, and then the uh, baby boomer generation are those that came of age under Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, and the Reagan years. They have much more divided party allegiances. The older baby boomers are more consistent Democrats, but um, the younger boomers shift. And their icons tend to be. Um, a lot of political leaders, uh, G.W. Bush, the Clintons, Barack Obama, Steve Jobs, and Tom Hanks. And then Generation X are those who grew up under the Reagan, the second half of the Reagan um, era, George H.W. Bush and the Clinton years. They're the in-between generation um, that really you'll see in our data. There's a dividing line between younger Americans and older, uh, older Americans. They don't have strong allegiances to either party, really. And the icons that exemplify them are Quentin Tarantino, Will Smith, Adam Sandler, Robert Downey Jr. And then finally, the silent generation is the oldest generation that we really dug down into. Um, oh, I already mentioned this. The millennials are the Bush and Obama era generation, possibly the most 
examine generation of, at least my lifetime, um, they are the least likely to affiliate themselves as Republican, but they're the most likely to say at the same time that they don't really uh, see themselves as part of either party. Um, they don't have strong allegiances. And their icons, according to Paul Teller, are Mark Zuckerberg, Lena Dunham, LeBron James, Jennifer Lawrence, and Lady Gaga. So that gives you a sense of the personalities of the generations. And if you can kind of think of it as a continuum from the silent generation to the millennials as um, um, the silent generation being the least demographically diverse to the millennials being the most uh, ethnographically, um, racially diverse group of Americans we've ever had in terms of the generation. And in terms of conservatism going from the silent generation being the most conservative to the younger generations then becoming less conservative. Okay, so the, just to tell you what we looked at, we looked at various types of international engagement. General overall sense of should America be involved in world affairs. Then we dug down into um, the sources of hard power, which are support for maintaining US military superiority and support for the use of force abroad. And then we looked at more peaceful means of international engagement, like uh, international agreements and alliances. And finally, we looked at trade and globalization because they're a little bit separate from other types of peaceful engagement. So what did we find? All right, first of all, Americans overall have been pretty positive about US international engagement since this barometer question was first asked in 1947. This is um, a standard question that a lot of political opinion researchers use to measure internationalism. Do you think it will be the best for the future of our country if we take an active part in world affairs or if we stay out of world affairs? So it's actually, to be honest, not a great question because the um, an active part in world affairs can mean so many different things at certain times as can staying out in world affairs. And it can mean so many different things to so many, to different people. So, but because it's what we call a trend question, a question that's asked repeatedly, uh, we are able to use it as a great research indicator. So this particular graph shows that Americans overall have been fairly positive between, generally between six and seven and 10 Americans um, have a favorable view. But it, when you look at it by generation, you can see some really clear differences. Um, eight and 10 silent generation uh, members say that the United States should take an active part. And then each successive generation after is less and less likely to have the same view. So somebody who just looked at these data alone might walk away with the idea that, oh, millennials are really much more isolationist than the other generations. But that would be mistaken to walk away with, with that thought, and we're going to get into those numbers. But there are some really clear differences and clear preferences. Um, as I said earlier, partisanship is a big divide in um, some of the foreign policy issues and in our politics in general today. And 
So we wanted to see whether the generational changes that we saw in the data are based mostly, can be explained mostly from whether a person affiliates themselves as a Republican or a Democrat or an independent, or whether there is something really special about your particular generation that makes you feel the way you do. So you can see that there does seem to be something going on with age here. The baby boomer generation, it doesn't really matter which political party you, you feel closest to. A large majority, at least seven in 10, say that the United States should, should um, play an active part in world affairs. You get to Generation X, and there's a little more variation um, within the generation as a whole. But if you look, if you compare the um, Republicans in Generation X to the baby boomers, Republicans, it's a big difference, 73% among the baby boomer Republicans versus 55% of the Generation X um, agree to this. So there's already a, a generational decline. And then if you go one step to another generation younger, to the millennials, the percentages who support the United States taking an active part in world affairs also go down. So for example, 60% uh, of Democrats who are millennials compared to 74% of boomers, that's a big shift. So there does seem to be something particular about your generations and um, at what point in the world you grew up on this question. Okay, so that we also wanted to see whether the idea of American exceptionalism had any differences or any different resonance between older Americans and younger Americans. So this is the question we use to gauge that. Some people say the United States is a unique character that makes it the greatest country in the world. Others say every country is unique and the United States is no greater than other nations. So you can see that the silent generation and the baby boomers and even Gen X are much more likely to say that the United States is the greatest country in the world and that millennials are evenly divided on this. Now, so two points on this. One is that just like with the um, gradations of support for the US taking an active role in world affairs decreased, so, so going from highest from, to the silence to the lowest among millennials, you see a similar um, pattern here. And also, millennials, one other thing that makes, that distinguishes them besides Lady Gaga being an icon is that um, they are the most diverse, most non-white, most poised to be the most um, educated generation in the history of the United States as well. So their sense of, and they're also tend to, they're much more likely to be either an immigrant or the children of immigrants. So <clears throat> by that notion, a millennial may feel that the United States, they, they are more connected in the world too. They also have grown up in the internet age. So they understand more about what's going on in the world. They feel, other surveys have shown that American nationality is not as important to them as a part of their identity as older Americans. And they are more likely to say that they are a global citizen than the other um, 
generations. They also happen to support globalization, um, even though you might think it might impact their sense of jobs and unemployment, but it doesn't. They're really positive about globalization. So all of this might help to explain why they don't see the United States as any greater than several other nations. But this is distinct among this generation. Okay. And then similarly, uh, basically, I'm just showing you this graphic quick, quickly to show that there are differences between the parties. So there is a partisan difference too, but that doesn't explain the differences among the generations alone. Just being a millennial is very different for them in terms of how they see the United States compared to older generations. Okay, so the first two items we looked at, we did see some generational divides. When we, then we wanted to see more specifically how do Americans of different age groups see the top threats to the United States. And on here we see a lot more commonality. Um, pretty much in the same order, regardless of the Americans' generational um, divide, they see North Korea's nuclear program, cyber attacks on US computer networks, international terrorism, and the possibility of new countries acquiring nuclear weapons as the top threats. Now, it is to varying degrees, and younger people have in the past as well always felt less threatened by things going on in the world than older Americans. But here you can see it for yourself that there is a De steadily declining sense of threat as people become younger. Um, the one issue of climate change, uh, one difference among um, millennials is that climate change is a little bit of a higher priority for them than older Americans, but they're not that different on that either. And then the most significant differences on foreign policy attitudes that we found are really based on uh, the idea of military superiority and the use of force. So in each of these cases, whether the United States should send US troops um, to conduct airstrikes against President Bashar al-Assad in Syria, the use of US troops if North Korea invaded South Korea, conducting airstrikes against violent Islamic extremist groups like ISIS, and the use of US troops if Russia invades a NATO ally. Um, in each of these cases, you see that for the most part, regardless of the generation, people tend to be on the same side of this, but uh, Generation X and the millennials, the yellow and red bars are consistently less supportive than older Americans. And it's really striking on Syria, the case of Syria, where it's only the silent generation who supports this by a majority. Um, and on a related issue, again, on the hard power issues, this is where we see the big differences. Younger Americans are less likely to see maintaining US military superiority as a very important foreign policy goal. 70% of silence versus 44% of millennials in this most recent data. And this also tends to be the most 
one of the most partisan issues in our data. But here, too, you can see that, yes, it's a big difference for Republicans and Democrats. But again, the age cohort also makes a difference with millennials, regardless of what political affiliation they are, being less likely than boomers to think US military superiority is a very important goal. And then quickly, similar views on defense spending. If you just look at 2017, you can see that there's a big difference between um, the silent generation and millennials and the um, declining, steady decline between the generations on whether the United States should expand its spending on defense. And again, there are partisan differences on this, as there traditionally are, but it's even more pronounced among millennials. And then, uh, so the slides we just reviewed show where the clearest differences are by generation. But it, when it comes to peaceful ways to connect with the rest of the world, younger Americans are all in with their grandparents and their parents. There's little differences um, among the generations when asking about whether people support US participation in the Paris Agreement or the Iran Agreement. And there's little differences between the generations on supporting alliances like NATO. Um, and then trade issues, too. Uh, there are just some minor differences across the generations in those who think international trade is good or bad for the US economy and consumers like you. A little bit more of a divide on creating jobs in the US, but that is pretty much the lowest um, bit of support that we see across all the generations. And on specific trade agreements, millennials are even more favorable toward uh, NAFTA and the TPP than older generations, which is really interesting because um, some of the data that look at domestic attitudes of millennials show that they are really concerned um, about job opportunities. So the fact that they're so supportive of trade agreements and see that as a positive is, um, is very interesting. So OK, so, we, so, so I just kind of went over some of the highlights because we want to hear from all the speakers. I hope that you will read the report. And if you have questions, we'll be happy to follow up um, with them here. But also, uh, once we get back, you can have our emails. Um, but the bottom line is basically that uh, millennials and younger generations, not really millennials, you saw that it's a steady decrease from generation to generation on the emphasis of hard power dimensions of US engagement. And as younger Americans um, move through the later stages in life, it will be interesting to see if their views continue in this regard and whether that will affect their voting choices and the future of US foreign policy. So I hope this is just the first of our collaborations together and look forward to the rest of the discussion. Uh, so thank you, Dina. That was a, a great run through of a report. And I encourage everyone to actually read through the full report because there's a lot more there uh, that uh, you can you know, kind of dig into. Uh, so again, thank you, Cato, for having us here. And thanks to the Chicago Council for partnering with us on what I think is a pretty important study of 
uh, a very large cohort of Americans and their views on foreign policy. Um, and then also thank people online for joining us, including hopefully my Generation Z kids who uh, <laughs> need to be educated about these things. That's uh, going to be their world. Um, so my main points are related to the implications of our findings for policy and politics. Uh, and in particular, I'd like to spend a few minutes discussing, discussing what I think this study means for the nature of our foreign policy ahead, especially at a moment in which more and more foreign policy questions are up for grabs, and more and more people are challenging the status quo uh, that has really dominated since the end of the Cold War. And, and Chris talked a lot about that, but I'll reiterate some of these things. So since the Soviet Union fell, the US has been following a foreign policy of, in, of deep engagement or primacy that has meant a heavy emphasis on forward deployment of troops, expanded security commitments, and the use of military force abroad. So we've seen the United States engage in conflicts, big and small, in places like Somalia, the Balkans, Iraq, many times, Syria, Afghanistan, Libya, the Horn of Africa, Yemen. I mean, I could go on and on, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your view. But the United States surely has been deeply engaged in the world. And we found ourselves thickly engaged as well in the domestic affairs of places across the globe. And oftentimes, we highlight just the military engagements, but also uh, the effects of our diplomacy being engaged, again, for good or for bad. Uh, think about our engagement in Ukraine and other places. So, um, but the thing is, is that right now, Americans aren't really sure that what we've been doing has been making us safer and more secure. Uh, in other polling that we've conducted at the Charles Koch Institute, we found that a majority of Americans have consistently noted that our foreign policy isn't making us or the world any safer. And when candidate Trump went to South Carolina in the primaries and criticized the Iraq war and President Bush's approach in a deep red state with a lot of military veterans and current military uh, uh, officers and enlisted, uh, he lived to tell about it, right? I mean, that was what was amazing about that. I mean, I, I thought that Pres candidate Trump was going to be you know, former candidate Trump many, many times. <laughs> but certainly going into <clears throat> South Carolina and really challenging the dominant narrative in the Republican Party on foreign policy, I thought, well, surely he'll be, be defeated here. Uh, but he lived to, tell, to talk about it. And so I think we've seen something change. And I think that this data may help us understand that change. Um, now, millennials, despite many deeply troubled by this president, especially given the fact that they are more liberal uh, and more democratic, as Dina talked about, I think they're also sensing that what we've been doing in the world hasn't been working, that deep engagement isn't necessarily tearing up to America's national interests. Uh, and, and I'll highlight just a few things, because I think they're worth uh, us repeating. Um, you know, millennials are substantially less likely than older generations to think that it's an important goal to maintain superior military uh, power worldwide. Indeed, it isn't a majority. They're also more friendly to cutting defense spending, as Dina showed, and less likely to see the US as threatened. Um, they're also uh, less than half supported the US in key uses of force scenarios, uh, such as if Russia invaded the rest of Ukraine, or a NATO ally, or sending troops to Syria, or to destroy nuclear facilities in North Korea. And they also appear to be less accepting of the kind of American exceptionalism that many have claimed undergirds that primacist approach that I just talked about. And so a lot less people are thinking that um, 
that we are greater than other nations than previous generations. Now, I'm not sure that that's necessarily good. I think we are the greatest country in the world, but I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer, so call me crazy. Um, but nonetheless, these things added up suggest that millennials look a lot more open to pursuing a new approach given these uh, results. And I think what they're more open to pursuing is a strategy of strategic restraint. Um, and I think this should give advocates of a new approach uh, that hope for a less militarized American foreign policy and one that focuses more on engagement in the world in productive ways through diplomacy and peaceful trade. I think they'll find fertile ground where perhaps it hasn't been the case with older generations more committed to the types of, of aggressive approaches that flowed from our Cold War posture and that was really put on steroids in the post-Cold War world. In fact, I think it's the, that kind of... Um, Cold War approach on steroids that we saw over the last 15 to 25 years that may be driving some of the results we're seeing. Now, of course, there's a big debate about whether these are aging, co uh, aging effects or cohort effects, um, but I think that there is some evidence that what's been happening and those experiences that millennials have lived through and that have shaped their political views have affected how they view that. And, and I think Trevor will go into that in more uh, depth in his comments, so I won't trump those. Um, so the other thing is I think that uh, it's really important uh, if this is true that millennials are more open to strategic <coughs> restraint because the next generation of foreign policy elites will be more mixed if this is the case. And since elites tend to dominate in the foreign policy realm, since it generally isn't or hasn't been seen as a pocketbook issue, for example, that causes people to melt phones on Capitol Hill, um, that's going to matter and could be quite key. Another thing I think is important is that this could set up a, a boomer versus millennial clash. It's something Dina and I talked about in the green room. Uh, she was telling me about uh, uh, the fact that we're really seeing the potential for a clash being set up on entitlements between boomers uh, who will benefit greatly from these entitlements at their current levels and millennials uh, who will be increasingly called upon uh, to fund that system since we have a pay-go entitlement system. Um, you could see the same thing set up here, right, where millennials may be called um, to pay the cost, both human and financial, for a foreign policy that continues along the status quo um, by people who aren't necessarily going to have to pay as many of those costs, especially when it comes to kind of the, the, uh, the kind of human costs of being actually called upon to fight and bleed in these wars. Um, versus the boomers who, who may, again, consistent with that older vision of what America's leadership role needs to be, may want us to get engaged. Uh, so I think that clash could be quite interesting, although most clashes, like the entitlement one, could be politically bloody. Now, despite this evidence that millennials may favor a new approach, and that could be greater restraint, I think, by their answers to some of these questions, I do worry about one thing in particular, and that is that partisan identification and ideological commitments will mitigate the impact of these views in the future. Namely, my question is, will the millennials who more strongly identify uh, in our survey as liberals and Democrats than prior generations, will they be as assertively opposed to the prioritization of military power under Democratic administrations as they now are under the current Republican administration? So we already saw this kind of thing happen a decade ago when the anti-war left that was gaining steam under President George W. Bush and his wars in Iraq and elsewhere, that this crumbled when President Obama replaced Bush in the White House. 
Um, you just really saw a kind of, I believe, a kind of partisan effect. It wasn't as if Gitmo got closed. It wasn't as if we stopped doing drone strikes. In fact, quite the contrary. It wasn't as if we left Afghanistan. Quite the contrary, President Obama increased our forces in Afghanistan. It wasn't as if we stopped fighting wars to engage in regime change. The fact is, is that the, in Libya, the United States did engage in a war uh, that led to regime change. And so this notion that Obama was a restrainer it, is a myth. And, and uh, Democratic opponents of Obama's, of, of our foreign policy under Bush, somewhat disappeared under Obama. Uh, and so we could see that happen again. These numbers could turn. Um, but let's see. Um, and that's something that maybe Trevor can comment upon in terms of this, what is actually leading to, to these results. Is it actually a cohort effect? Um, that means those experiences with Iraq, for example, are going to stick even if you have a Democratic administration come to power and advocate for something similar in the future. Now, I do think this, this survey shows that, um, uh, or this question really shows that it's the responsibility of realists and restrainers to try to educate young Americans about the benefits of and the arguments for restraint um, so that this can deepen their commitment uh, and it'll last across time in administrations. Or if you favor deep engagement and think that the restraint that we see in the millennials is actually a mistake, that what we've been doing in showing American leadership and being deeply engaged in the world is necessary for American interests, it means that, that those advocates of primacy are going to need to work harder to convince Americans that we need to stay the course. So either way, there's a lot of education that needs to happen here. Uh, and I think this is especially, like I said, important if these findings are related to, um, to cohort effects. Um, but I'd hazard, hazard a guess here that, that one of the things that is going to, I think, mitigate um, against future educational efforts, if you will, is the fact that these, these important generational experiences that, that have a, uh, a kind of hardening effect on how people view the world, um, that those are oftentimes less, per, uh, they're more impervious. Um, now, that being said, you could probably argue that, you know, if anything should have turned the United States towards greater restraint, it should have been the Vietnam War. And our survey uh, data isn't showing necessarily that that convinced, for example, boomers who came of age at that time that, hey, we need to stop doing things like Iraq. That wasn't the case. Um, and so, again, this is a pretty messy sorting out the why. And so I'm going to use that as a segue to turn it over to my colleague, Trevor, to answer the hard questions. Uh, so uh, anyway, uh, thank you very much. All right, go for it. At least I didn't have to say it was the hard part, so it doesn't sound like I'm, I'm whining. But um, okay, okay. Um, so you know, Dina, great job <clears throat> summarizing, and and Will, you know, a great job sort of laying out some of the implications. But um, my task is to talk a little bit about stuff that we didn't actually get to in the report because it's long enough as it is. Just trying to give you a description of these differences, uh, where they're big, where they're not big. Um, and future work is going to have to untangle why these differences, why these patterns of similarities and differences exist. And I, I you know, side note, I'm working on that. Um, so we'll have another event in the future where you can come listen to us blather about that. But um, for now, I'm just going to lay out some hypotheses for you, some things that we're pretty sure are part of the answer, but that we're not yet sure, you know, how much is, is due to what. 
And the answer to why is not important just because it's interesting, which I think it is, but it's really important because um, for, for Will's you know, uh, portion here, it's really important whether these effects are permanent or temporary. It's really important for how future uh, foreign policy leaders go about trying to lead the nation, whether the issues are mostly partisan, whether they're mostly generational, or whether they actually have mostly uh, something to do without the current state of affairs in the world. And so parsing out the different factors driving Americans' opinions is, is really important for thinking about our future. <clears throat> so there are, I think, four things probably happening, um, several of which have been touched on a little bit already that could explain some of the things we're seeing here. The first is just age. Um, when, if we, if we brought back, could we bring back that slide? Is that possible? <laughs> bring back the slide. I don't know how to do that. Do we do that? Uh, here, yes, let's see. I'm gonna bring back the first slide if I can. There we go. Aha. Dave, Dave's on it. I'm like, okay, going back up. Okay, going back to this one. All right. So if we just look at this chart as a snapshot and you say, hey, young people not so supportive of engaging the world, older people more supportive of engaging the world. One quick hypothesis you might generate is, well, I guess as people get older, they get more interested in getting engaged in the world. And that's a possibility. That is one thing that might be happening. Um, there are many aging effects on different kinds of issues that scholars have looked at. Uh, for example, one thing we know, uh, you know from a lot of studies about young people is that they're fairly disinterested in political affairs in politics. Uh, and most Americans don't care much about foreign policy either, but young people care you know, even less than other people about that. So one theory here might be that as people age and get more engaged in the business of running the country, feel more responsible for public affairs, dial in more to it, that they naturally will start answering this question more and more in the affirmative, let's take an active part, because now they understand the importance of what's going on, whereas they didn't before. And I think some of that is probably going on. But I don't think that can be a full answer to what's going on um, because uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, uh, a chart that you, you don't see here but that you'll see eventually, if we add a couple more generations using the older survey data, not the Chicago Council, but the Roper Center data, um, we would see that the greatest generation and the silent generation, I'm sorry, the lost generation before that, we actually have a different pattern where the older Americans are less uh, supportive of engaging the world than the following generation. And so a simple aging effect doesn't seem like it could be the only thing going on. There may be other things going on there. The second thing that makes aging uh, not a very convincing single explanation for what's going on is the fact that it's hard to make one factor explain all the different things we see. For example, if it explains this question, and it explains potentially um, why older people are more interested in using military force, why doesn't it also, why don't we also see a difference on cooperation? So aging magically has an effect on being more hawkish, but doesn't have any effect on cooperation. I, I don't have a good theory for why that would be. That seems kind of not likely. So I do think there are aging effects occurring. The trick is we need to tease out what areas those things are happening and which areas where they're not happening. And that, that's messy, statistically speaking. Um, 
One of the reasons it's messy, statistically speaking, is the presence of what we call period effects. Uh, period effects are when something big out there happens in the world, ISIS beheads a bunch of people, Iraq invades Kuwait, Russia takes over Crimea, and people freak out for some time. As you can see, all, all of the lines go up and down, a lot of times at the same time in the same direction, right? And those are period effects. Something happens to make people more concerned about something, and they think, hey, we got to get more involved. Or something bad happens, and everyone goes, hey, let's take a step back, sort of all at the same time. It's usually temporary. You know, you get hit in the face, it hurts for a while, and then eventually it doesn't. It's a period effect. It only hurts for a little while. Um, and eventually you're back to whatever your general normal equilibrium might be. Well, as you can see, since we only take surveys every so often, it's, it's sometimes hard to know what's the baseline, because there's always something going on. And we're always trying to figure out, is that just because of what's going on right now, or is that because of? So reading trends is really important, uh, and, but, it, but it remains difficult to know. And just to throw a little bit of extra complication on top of that, period effects can affect different people differently. Right? So if something bad happens in the world, it doesn't mean that it's going to affect us all exactly the same way. Even though we have general patterns that make it look like that, what we don't know is, do old people uh, respond the same way young people do to crises? Right? Old people, after all, have been around the block for a while. Right? So um, you know, some tragedy happens somewhere else, young people might freak out. And they might get really concerned. Old people might say, ah, you know, that's, you'll learn. That kind of just happens. So even period temporary effects might not be the same across generations or across party affiliations and so on. So there's even in, to say period effect is, is simplifying a little bit. A third thing that is happening to cause uh, these patterns, undoubtedly, and Dina hit this uh, quite well, is social and demographic changes. Um, we know that the younger Americans are the most uh, diverse group of Americans, uh, ethnically, racially, much more likely to be children of immigrants than older Americans. Um, they're much more liberal, uh, and although that's a little bit more complicated when you ask about are they Republican or Democrat, since they tend to also be least likely to identify with the party, they, they do tend to vote Democratic a little bit more, right? Um, they also are much better educated on average than older Americans were. So many more you know, people graduate from high school, go to college, and so on and so forth. Um, and then uh, people are also much less uh, likely to be religiously affiliated these days. And the sum total of that, though, is a very complicated picture. <laughs> Those different social and demographic changes don't have a, a unidirectional impact on international engagement. Some of them point one way. Some of them kind of point the other way. So for example, the fact that people are more liberal now, right? younger people are much more likely to be liberal, well, historically, that's actually uh, associated with people being more likely to answer, take an active part. So one way to think of that is to say, the number of millennials who say take an active part um, would be even lower if they weren't so liberal. Right? So what we're not seeing on this chart is what would be true if they weren't liberal. I mean, so something, in other words, is actually propping up millennial support just based on what liberalness would have told us to expect. Uh, on the other hand, they are, again, becoming the best educated group of Americans. And education has a strong, powerful, positive impact on people's desire to be engaged with the rest of the world. So that may be what's helping prop the millennial number up, is the fact that they're pretty well educated. Uh, other things are even harder to, to figure out. Um, you know, Dina speculated it's possible that 
the fact that more millennials are immigrants and children of immigrants could make them more open to immigration and to globalization because they feel more comfortable with the rest of the world and all that sort of stuff. And that's certainly true. But it's not clear that, that if that drives people to want more active engagement, it doesn't necessarily help us explain the pattern between uh, military engagement versus cooperative engagement necessarily. I mean, it could, but it's not totally obvious why that would be. And then the last set of factors uh, that I think helps explain these gaps or these uh, differences in these patterns are, are cohort effects. Uh, and you know, simply put, a cohort effect is sort of the sort of sum uh, effects on people's psyches of growing up at a certain time of the world that's very different from the way the world looked when their parents and their grandparents grew up. So, you know, as, as Dina sort of summarized, our, our icons change, <laughs> but the way the world seems changes too. So imagine a person coming of age uh, after World War II, the U.S. is the sole superpower, uh, you know, we've just beat the Nazis and the Japanese in World War II, we're feeling great, we're rebuilding the world, our economy is number one, we have 50% of the global GDP, we're feeling pretty good about ourselves. And a person growing up at that time thinks America is obviously the best country. There's not even another candidate. Um, we can do whatever we want because we just did. Um, and we have the confidence to, if the president, we trust the president, and if he says it's a good thing to do, we should, uh, yeah, we're, let's go do it. Contrast that with someone growing up and coming of age in the wake of, say, you know, coming of consciousness in the, in the mid, you know, aughts, you know, 2004, 5, 6. Um, Iraq is a mess. Afghanistan is a mess. Uh, we have, you know, Vietnam in our history now. You know, it wasn't, we haven't had a good war in a very long time. No one of that age remembers a good war. No one trusts the president anymore these days. Party polarization is, is vicious and rampant, and it doesn't, Washington smells like a sewer. Uh, you don't really necessarily trust the government at the same rate someone coming of age in the late 40s or 50s would have. Um, and so it, it just seems like it shouldn't be too surprising that that kind of cohort effect on the different aged Americans would have some effect on the way people answer these questions. Maybe less confident in America, less uh, supportive of American exceptionalism means you're less likely to want to take an active part, depending on what you think that means. Again, it's not always clear from this question. Um, maybe that helps explain why uh, younger people uh, to some degree feel less interested in using military force because they, they haven't been alive for what they think of as a, a good, legitimate, successful use of force. Uh, it's complicated to know. And I don't think that cohort effect any more than the other variables here could explain all of the things we see. Uh, because they're, you know, despite growing up in very different time periods, younger Americans seem to agree more or less precisely with older Americans about international trade and, and cooperation. I mean, there's some differences, but you know, it's very similar. Uh, so the bottom line is I'm not liable for any of what I've just said because it's very complicated. <laughs> and I, I could be right, I could be wrong. I, I, I punt on all of that. Um, but, but here's the thing. Each of these different uh, possible explanations predicts something a little bit different about how long these effects should last and, and what their impact on our politics should be. If, if most of these things are just aging effects, and as people get older, they're going to revert to the way older people think of things, then you're like, okay, you know, this is a snapshot, but it's, it's not really that important because in the long run, we're always going to average about 65 70%. People say take an active part in the world, and, and that's just going to be fine. Um, if, on the other hand, what we're looking at is mostly due to social and demographic change, 
and people getting more liberal, people getting less white, and so on, better educated. Or if it's cohort effects and you know, permanent imprints have been left on successive generations that create a different sort of lower baseline for engagement and a different, less supportive of military force uh, perspective, then I don't think there's much reason to expect that things will change. And then the question becomes, uh, where is the world headed? Are the factors that created those cohort effects and those social and demographic changes, are those trends deepening? Should we expect Generation Z to be even more millennial than the millennials? Or are some of the factors that made millennials and Gen Xers you know, change from their elders, are those some of those things turning around? So we would expect some of those gaps in Generation Z's polling results to kind of come back to historical averages. We're going to have to just wait and see and do a lot more polling work to find out. We're going to be in business for a long time. Uh, look forward to the conversation. Thanks. <clears throat>
people were still a bit concerned about the 2008 financial crisis, so they said, we have so many problems here at home, we need to focus on those problems at home. And other surveys have found, and in general, Americans will prioritize domestic issues over foreign policy issues unless there's a major crisis or a direct threat to the US. Um, they also thought that other countries um, rely on us too much and that perhaps don't appreciate it. Um, that's one part of it. And another is that we interfere too much and uh, that the United States isn't necessarily the best model for everything and we shouldn't impose our views. So this were uh, some of the ideas in the follow-up. But what we also did was we looked at there's something called a crosstab in statistics. And you look at one question and cross it with another question and see how the people who answered, I want to take an active part in world affairs, how did they respond to um, attitudes towards the use of force in those specific scenarios? And the same thing for those people who said stay out. And then we'd look at do they support um, use of force? Surprisingly, many of the people who said stay out of world affairs did support a number of the scenarios where we would send troops to defend another country or something like that. But in general, it was much lower. So that was a really key dimension that comes across in all the other questions too, but we can actually merge the questions and look at them together. The other thing is that we also asked a question that is in the report, if you guys have the report, and that is on page um, 10. We asked specifically what kind of leadership role the United States should play. Um, should it be a dominant world leader, a shared leadership role, or not play any leadership role at all? And for us, the key question is actually that very few say no leadership role. No more than one in 10 Americans say nothing at all. So the isolationism myth is just a myth. But um, the shared leadership role is much higher than dominant. That can mean many things, but probably a lot of it's burden sharing and, and um, as well as working through multilateral institutions. So that's, and then my final point is that just the American public overall is divided and it does tend to fall along party lines or, or ideology lines that half of Americans support projecting our influence and power through maintaining military superiority and having countries fear American might. And the other half prefer that we focus on the cooperative international institutions and the more peaceful means of um, projecting our influence abroad. Great, thank you. Uh, quick question for, um, for Trevor, uh, you, you referred to this a little bit, Trevor. I want to I push back on it even a bit more. Obviously, there are, uh, you know, partisanship is, is real, and this study, as many others, sort of reaffirms this. There is partisan difference even within the different age cohorts. Um, on the other hand, in some of the earlier research, including the, the Cato study, um, it appeared as though uh, millennial Republicans were less hawkish than silent generation Democrats, for example, or greatest generation Democrats. But have we seen, or, or do, do you think we might see, um, a move away, a sort of reverse Trump effect? Be precisely because millennials, uh, younger Americans and millennials, are less likely than the other age cohorts to have supported Donald Trump, um, 
and they seem particularly at odds with President Trump on immigration and trade issues, uh, is it possible that they will sort of turn away in that sense? Do you, you see any evidence of that in the early stages, or is it just too soon to say? Yeah, I think it's a little too soon to, to know for sure. I think, the, yeah, the, the Trump boomerang is a, is a thing. And this is a, a very, although it's, 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 it's weird. Um, because, uh, you know, Trump's America first vision, as you started in your intro, you know, had a lot of foreign policy analysts somewhat concerned that the reason Trump's message seemed to win was because maybe the American public had ditched support for the old way. And then the question is, does that mean they adopted America first? Is that what they're now thinking? And the last year and a half, I think, has suggested the answer to that is no, because on a number of things, um, whether it's trade, uh, or most recently, I just saw in the paper a day or two ago uh, on immigration, uh, record numbers of Americans overall are more supportive of immigration and trade than they were before Trump. So Trump's message is actually producing a boomerang effect. Of course, most of that boomerang effect is among independents and Democrats. Right. So um, I think the question of what millennial and Gen Z Republicans are going to do is still up in the air. They haven't decided to flee Trump just yet. Um, so, uh, but, it is, but it is true that in general, um, you know, and a bunch of Dina's slides showed this, that um, there, although party is super strong, and it's gotten stronger in the last 10 years as an explainer for how people say, uh, you know, have opinions about foreign policy, uh, it's also true that you can't erase generational effects on most issues by just using party because there are still generational trends uh, away from support for the use of force. Right. Can I add? Sure, one please, of course. Yeah. Note to that, um, and I think it's a it it, it is um, an important thing to keep in mind too that even though support for immigration uh, has been increasing and support for trade has been increasing, the people who are against it are much more, they hold those beliefs much more strongly and they would possibly go out to vote for somebody because of that issue, if maybe solely for that issue, right. where the people, the other people just kind of have a passive support right. for it and right. aren't as energized. It matters hugely. Yeah. Uh, as, yeah, right. Point. All right, one last question, mostly for Will, I think. Well, the Charles Koch Foundation has supported foreign policy research that's broadly in line with realism and restraint and, and uh, certain skepticism of the use of force. You mentioned some of the ways in which uh, some of the findings in the report you, you find encouraging, or at least grounds for optimism. Are there, are there anything you see in the views of millennials that concern you, or as you point out, really sort of where the educational effort really needs to be focused uh, most? Well, uh, I want to touch on the question you asked Dina, because I think it relates to this, which is that top line uh, question. Right. And I've always actually been surprised how low the support is for an active role. Um, because I would answer the question, yes, right, we should stay right. active and engaged, right? I mean, we should be trading with the world. We should be diplomatically engaged uh, in a way that's productive, showing our example to the world of liberalism, democracy. Um, we should be open to cultural exchange and businesses going abroad and businesses coming and investing here in America. Um, so it suggests to me that actually the ceiling for a restrained vision of how we engage militarily as long as we stay engaged um, in other areas, I actually think is quite high. Mm -hmm. And so I think the prospect of Americans shifting from deep engagement as aggressive use of military power, as opposed to a kind of, if, if you will, 
a different kind of liberal internationalism, a liberal internationalism that actually means liberal in the old classical liberal sense of being engaged um, through trade um, and being engaged by being open to the world but being skeptical of the ability of military power to achieve our ends is probably quite high. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is a good thing. Again, you have to make the case. You have to tell Americans, no matter what cohort they're in, hey, this is going to be beneficial to you. This is something that will actually tear up to America's safety. This will actually make us more prosperous, or at least provide the conditions for our prosperity. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's what, what Americans have to do. But look, that's what Americans across the board need to do. And, and you talked about some of the work that, that we're doing uh, at Coke. Um, we think it's important that there's a broad discussion about these issues because the right path to make us safer or more prosperous, we should have humility about our ability to know that. And so more research like the kind we have in this, in this document and others is going to be helpful to that conversation. Uh, regardless of whether you think it's restraint is the best path forward or you think continuing to stay the course. And so what we need actually is just for these ideas to be, I think, um, um, in discussion more. Right. I won't even say conflict, right? right. They, but they should, be, they should be, you know, kind of like atoms bouncing off against each other more often. Uh, right. And so, like, look, Cato's tried to do this here in Washington for generations, uh, and you should be applauded um, because that conversation has been too narrow. Uh, and I think millennials are probably open to that conversation that's broader as we see in our results because they are worried about, you know, uh, lots of folks have been talking about how, well, Obama, President Obama should have stood that red line that would have solved the problem. But millennials don't seem to be all that supportive, even today getting engaged, even knowing what we know about what's happened there. Right. Um, or when it comes to North Korea, should we do a bloody nose strike? I mean, that wasn't in the, in the survey because our survey was before we talked about that. But the notion of using force to knock out facilities, those had really low approval. Right. And so I think that there is a lot of openness to a new debate um, in, you know, in America. Um, I guess the other thing I, I would want to add to this is that um, you know, we talked, I talked a little bit about restraint, but I didn't say as much about realism. And I think what realism brings to this conversation is that if realism is right, which is the notion that big structural variables impact the results we see in the international system, and if there's a realist theory of foreign policy, it means that big structural factors should affect even foreign policies, not just the overall outcomes we see in the system. And so if realism is right, we ought to see changes in public opinion if public opinion is fairly rational because the system has been changing. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't believe that we live yet in a fully multipolar world. But the fact is, is that the unipolarity that Charles Krauthammer proclaimed is actually, I think, a lot less sharp today. Mm -hmm. The United States is still the military power par excellence in the international system. We dominate in terms of military spending. The next, what, seven to eight to 10 countries combined add up to what we spend. The OCO budget, the Overseas Contingency part of the budget, was greater this year than what Russia spends per year. Right? And, and so that's why, in some ways, uh, the system is still unipolar in one angle. But on the other hand, the gap in other aspects has shifted. And as we're seeing those shifts, especially in the sense of technology, right? where defense is easier. You know, your colleague Eric Gomez was talking last week about how the offense-defense balance is shifting more towards the defensive. That's going to have a, have a change in terms of the international system if you believe that that should be part of a structural analysis. And I think what that means is that public opinion should change. Namely, if they have a rational public, they're going to respond to those systemic changes in a rational fashion, which means that it's going to be harder for us to do things abroad 
without suffering great costs in terms of blood and treasure. That means that, again, that ceiling for restraint should grow because it's going to be more costly to do the opposite. Uh, I think Trevor and Dina both want to jump in. Yeah, I just, I just want to toss in just a general comment that, you know, a lot of times uh, DC types poo-poo these kind of discussions of foreign policy and talking about the political implications because they assume that voters don't vote based on foreign policy issues very often. And that is probably true at the voting booth under most conditions where I think the economy tends to dominate. But in fact, um, uh, uh, shout out to intern Hannah, good job, um, who <laughs> found a great um, uh, chart that Nate Silver, the polling guru from the website 538, um, put together looking at um, the correlations between foreign policy approval and economic issues with presidential approval. And the strength of the correlation between foreign policy approval and presidential approval is about twice as strong as the correlation between economics and presidential approval. And so what that means is on all the other days, other than the generic voting day, um, <clears throat> politics in DC is in fact uh, related to what people think about foreign policy. Whether Americans know it or not, and I assume they actually probably don't, um, there's always something big going on that flavors people's views of the president. And as we know, you know, president's political capital matters a lot. And so if he's screwing up overseas, um, that's going to play into the polls, and his approval is going to sink, and he's going to find it harder to get things done in D.C. And so, I, I, just a plug for our event, where you're already here, so you don't need it. But I, anyway, <laughs> I didn't have anything, but I'll just quickly add. Um, in terms of education, I, uh, there's a professor at uh, University of Pennsylvania. She's a political scientist. Diana Moss always says, you know, it's very hard to show Americans the tangible benefits of trade to them personally. And, um, but it's so easy to say there's a factory that shut down and uh, look how many jobs were lost. So I, I feel like that's also something that our political and economic leaders haven't yet put across in a way that can be um, uh, resonate with everyday Americans, especially in rural areas. Right. Very good. All right, well, thank you all very much. Um, I, I have to keep checking my watch. It, it, we have a clock up here on the stage. It tells us it's uh, 6.15. It's been 6.15 the, the whole last time. hour and 15 minutes. All right. Um, uh, for those of you in the audience who've been very patient, I'd like to take some uh, questions. Please wait for the microphone so that we, for the benefit of those watching uh, online, uh, please identify yourself and your affiliation if, if you have one. And uh, the Jeopardy rule applies here at the Cato Institute. That means uh, frame your question in the form of a question, uh, no speeches. I'm going to group questions together because we have many people here who are interested. So can I get uh, this person right here ask a question and uh, then uh, over there and then I'll get to go ahead right there and then uh, right there. I'll group a couple questions together and then we'll move our way back. Go ahead, sir. Uh, my name is Robert Davis and I'm a, a professional veterans advocate. Uh, my question is, uh, you talked about the cohort effect. Was there any research done on to how the post 9-11 military and veteran cohort has impacted the view on foreign policy, um, and if they have, what do you think that view is, and how will it change going forward? Very good, veterans and millennials. Yes, sir, go ahead. Uh, my name is Ami Friedman. Uh, could the prevalence of leftist liberal thinking in academia 
which pervades colleges and universities these days have had an, a significant impact on the viewpoint of millennials? Okay, good question. So um, veterans and millennials and uh, the left liberal academia. I think he's talking about you oh, there, oh. Trevor Thrall. So. <laughs> <laughs> I kidding. have not had a liberal impact on my students. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't think. Um, so uh, good question. Um, you know, the... Uh, Typically, the way you know people do these polls is they're big nationally representative samples, and so you know if you have a thousand or twelve hundred people in the sample, you know, and there's four generations, uh, the millennials is about a quarter of that, um, and so we don't usually have enough um, millennials in one survey to sort of slice it up by who is a veteran, who wasn't a veteran, and things like that. So um, I don't know of any specific data that looks at the uh, changing opinions of millennial veterans. Um, all I have there is anecdote. Mm -hmm. And um, I have to say, I'm not sure that I have a clear, clear picture. You know, I'm sure as someone who deals with veterans all the time, you, you could probably tell me more about this. But, but I, I'm actually surprised um, how little impact uh, being a veteran has. Uh, to me, it seems like people, uh, their generic worldview is a pretty strong thing, and serving um, you know, for some people, it, if they have an experience that seems especially, you know, horrendous, I think uh, that can often change an opinion about maybe a specific uh, aspect of, of one of the occupations, wars, what have you. Um, but I haven't seen that much evidence that it changes somebody's sort of general approach to how the United States should deal with the world. Any questions? Uh, yeah, I want to touch question. on this question Please. about uh, left liberal academics. I think one of the things that's been exciting uh, that I've seen on campus is that there's actually more diversity on foreign policy issues on campus and that left versus right isn't as you know, important in terms of that debate. Uh, so for example, you have people uh, uh, across that range whether it's you know, Andy Basevich at Boston University, who's generally thought of as more conservative, to you know, Steve Walt at uh, Harvard, who's considered more liberal. These are people who are challenging uh, the kind of direction we've been taking from both sides of the political spectrum. And then there are all kinds of people in between. And so there, that, that debate that we, we need here in Washington that I referenced earlier is happening on campus, particularly on the issue of grand strategy, about you know, how, what are the goals of the state and what are the military means and how should we use them to satisfy those goals. That debate is happening a lot on campus. We need to bring that to Washington. So it's actually the pathologies in foreign policy aren't necessarily on campus. They're actually here in Washington, DC. Right. Uh, over here, and uh, yeah, go ahead, Ben, real uh, quick. It's ben, ben Freeman of the Center for International Policy. Uh, I think my question's for Trevor. And basically, w what I want to know is if, if you have done or seen any work on intergenerational age effects, and, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, not all millennials are created equal. And really what I want you to do is, because I am the very ceiling of a millennial, and I am confounded by millennials, can you please <laughs> solve that for me. <laughs> all right, uh, good question there. Uh, and yes, ma'am, go ahead. Hi, I'm Diana Olbaum. I'm an independent consultant. And I was just very interested by the trend lines, which seem to all have a huge reversal in 2014. They were going down, and then they all bump up. And I was wondering what happened in 2014 that changed that. Good. Two good questions. Very good, and we'll take those two questions and then we'll move to the back of the room. Move to the back of the room. Move to the back of the room, I'll tell you where to go. Go ahead. Okay, so let me, let me clarify an in, in, intergenerational. You, um, you are, there are many ways to interpret this. You, so you're on the cusp, this is like if you're a, uh, uh, you know, a, a Pisces and an Aquarius, you're right on the edge and you wanna know why, why I'm one <laughs> or not the other. 
Um, that, that's actually, you know, the cohort effect is, is um, a, an object of study in the subfield of political socialization. Uh, and so there are many things that help you become the person you are, of course, uh, as a young person. Um, you know, one of which, you know, one big set of those factors is what's happening in the world around you um, that you share with everybody who's your age, right? So the United States, the power it has, the, the, what wars are going on, those are constants for you and everyone your age. What's not the same for you and everyone your age, though, is, of course, your own family. What part of the country you grew up in? Are you religious? Are your parents strict, uh, you, know, uh, you know, disciplinarians? Are they sort of loosey-goosey Vermont Birkenstock hippie types? And so, or even worse, like my parents, do you have one of each? One of so each. you have no idea what to do when you grow up, right? So, so, um, so there, there I think, um, you know, and using the, the label generation is really just a, a matter of convenience because, of course, um, the factors and, and my future research uh, that I'm doing with Eric right now, um, we, we, we talk about generations, but what we really do is we look at each age cohort, so all you know, 20 year olds, 21 year olds, and what are the conditions for each person when they specifically were born? So you are a different millennial than a very younger millennial, clearly. Um, I'm an older, Will, Chris, and I are all old Gen Xers. Old Gen Xers. We are yeah. so different from young Gen Xers. I mean, you know, yeah. really. Well, really, yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, so, you know, generation is a handy label because if you lump people and you look at, you know, 20 year uh, differences, you find differences. But as you get closer to the middle, they disappear because the world's closer to the same then. So that's a long winded answer. Nina, to you want to get in on this too? Yeah. Yeah. So I feel you're. Your discomfort. I was born in 1964, so the last year of the baby boomers. But I feel like I have more in common with like the hippie uh, Woodstock attending. But so, but research has shown that actually the baby boomers themselves, there were uh, so as millennials age, you might see more differentiation because those who um, were the older baby boomers, the first set of them. Um, are consistent Democrats and liberals. But the second half has shifted politically, and they don't have a succinct, um, defined affiliation. So I think as, you know, as life happens <laughs> and uh, things happen in the world, you might see more differentiation. Right now, um, millennials aren't as, they don't pay as much attention to, um, news or world events as older generations. Older generations show out in strong forces at the voting booth because they're worried about Social Security and Medicare, especially younger Americans aren't as concerned at that. And they don't. So like millennials, for example, 25% of millennials, 25% of Americans are millennials, but only 20% voted. Right. And like, 2014 election. Yeah, no. So, but I was going to say, but, 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 because one of the things that I'm curious to learn um, is, you know, what the hell has happened in our country? Because um, the, we all share that. Yeah. And, uh, so, so, the, the, you know, the, the interest in public affairs thing is a really fascinating one. And, you know, as a, I, I, one of the courses I teach uh, when I'm not talking about bombs and rockets is politics in the media. And so I ask my students every year a depressing question how many of you subscribe to a hard copy? of a newspaper or a magazine. And, for and they the say, last, what's that? The, for the last five <laughs> years in a row, zero hands have gone up <laughs> in my class of 40 or 50 people. And, it's, and I, as an inveterate newspaper and magazine reader, like my amount of recycling is embarrassing. 
Um, but, but one of the things that even there, there's a real important question as to how much aging will matter for millennials' interest in public affairs. If we think of Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone book, mm -hmm. right? And one of the big arguments there is that Americans are less and less dialed into their communities, less and less interested in public affairs. And one of, you know, he cites all these trends, newspaper readership, voting, and so on and so forth. Yes, there are aging effects. People are going to get more likely to vote. We already see this with millennials. Uh, but there may be a lower ceiling for their interest in public affairs mm -hmm. than the more committed, civic-minded generations of old who went through the crucibles of the Depression and the World Wars and all that sort of stuff. I don't know. I mean, we'll find out. Well, I don't want to lose track of Diana's question about the period. We had a, we had a major period effect in 2004. Oh, yes. Yeah, I want to make sure we comment yeah, on yeah. that. So it, wasn't ahead. it Jihadi John? Oh, that was ISIS. Jihadi yeah. John. Yeah. yeah. ISIS. Yeah. Yep. Is that, did you want to also get in? Because I got time for I have time for questions in the back if they make them good. And look at all those hands. <laughs> look at those hands in the back. No pressure, gang. All right, uh, sir, in the middle, in the blue shirt, right there. Yeah, and then right next to him. So we got two mics, and uh, here we go. Yeah, go, no, go ahead, right there, sir. Go ahead. Thank you very much. My question is a country-specific question. Uh, has there been any change in support for the state of Israel? Okay, good question. And right next to you, sir. Related to that, the movement of the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. Okay, good question. And right next to you, sir, hand the mic to the gentleman right next to you. Uh, I'm Kenneth Book. So you mentioned the uh, increased uh, support for liberal values in millennials, uh, which usually trends towards increased government intervention. But we also seem to see uh, a decreased support for government intervention internationally. And we said that that can't be because of globalization. So how can you reconcile those two points? Okay, good questions. Uh, who wants to take those, either of them? We see any changes in the... I'll take Israel. Um, okay. So we, in our poll, haven't... We're asking it uh, this summer, so come back to me in, in a year. I mean, in a couple months. But um, the last time we asked, actually, Gallup polls and other Pew polls have shown that um, I think millennials still have a positive view of Israel as a country, but in terms of whether you should side with Israelis or Palestinians, millennials are less likely to say that we should side automatically with Israel. Our own data show that most Americans think we should not take either side. And so in that data, the millennials feel the same way. Okay. But that's the uh, biggest. And the, question, the second question about uh, liberalism and... Uh... Intervention. Yeah, I, mean, I think... Um, <clears throat> That's an interesting question. I, I think liberal, um, in terms of the connection to wanting the government to do more, um, that, there's always been a difference, I think, between domestic and international for, from a liberal ideology standpoint. I, I don't think the liberal ideological standpoint means necessarily means meddle. I think it does tend to mean help. And so I think you, know, you saw during the 90s after the end of the Cold War, Bill Clinton tried to do an awful lot of helping. Um, and I think liberal uh, folks were quite supportive of that. And, and we see that in the polls where millennials are interested in helping. Um, and so, you know, humanitarian interventions and so on and so forth, I think, tend to get pretty high support from millennials. Um, but on the other hand, if you phrase the question in such a way as to make it sound sort of military-centric, then their other part of liberal kicks in. And it's like, nah, don't, that's, no thanks. So it is a, it's an interestingly mixed bag. Uh, okay, I have two, p two p hands up on either side of the aisle, right there. Uh, right there, uh, yes ma'am, right there, no, right there. I'll, I'll take it first. Um, All right, Eric, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Eric Gomez from Cato, and y'all talked a little bit about the impact of this information on 
uh, electoral politics, but I'm curious about if it will have an impact on bureaucratic politics because millennials are having a pretty hard time getting into the sort of lower rungs of government, either because you know clearance processes take too long and people want to work in the private sector instead and don't feel like waiting. But it seems like the younger cohort is especially having a trouble on the security side getting into those positions to actually make the government work. Um, so do you think that or I'm interested in just your ideas on how this might impact uh, the bureaucracy in addition to the electoral. Okay, and then right across the aisle there. Ella Brewer of the Potomac Advocates. My question is more about your research methods. Specifically, I noticed some discrepancies um, between the climate change. So 54% uh, of millennials say that climate change is a significant threat to America, and yet 74% say that they want to stay within the Paris Agreement. So I'm wondering, how are you taking into account possibly the comprehension issues of the question, for example, with climate change, the fact that it's like 10 years down the road, perhaps could that be because people don't realize that climate change is a much more prevalent and immediate issue? Okay, and then we got time for one other question right there, sir. Yeah, hand the mic down, then I'll get... Uh, these uh, guys are really good, so they can keep track of all these questions simultaneously. Go ahead. Thank you very much. My name is Connor Clark. I'm at the University of Maryland. Uh, I suppose I should ask about a so far untouched uh, panda in the room. <laughs> um, you know where I'm going with this. Yes. Uh, how what are, about China? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How, how are millennials and other generations good. looking at China more as a threat, cooperator, competitor? Good. Three good questions. Three good discrete questions. Right. Who wants I'll, I'll start on, on bureaucracy. Um, <clears throat> it is frustrating to wait. I've, I've given uh, talks on, on this topic and the related topics of the, about the millennials for the last few years. And from young folks, I almost always get a question of, how do I talk to my old out-of-it boss about these issues? <laughs> um, and, and there's a real frustration um, because there is this gap, I think, a lot of times. You know, just like, I mean, I, my kids and I argue about stuff all the time. And they can't, my son, one of my sons says, Dad, I don't even know why they let you vote um, because you're going to be dead when all this um, it starts happening. <laughs> I, I should be the one making the decisions. And I get, <laughs> I get that frustration, but um, I think it's, you know, just wait is the answer um, because everyone's going <laughs> to die and then you'll, be, you'll have the job. Um, <laughs> But, but also remember, even on the security side specifically, I mean, 70-plus percent of the armed services are millennials already. Right. It's just a matter of time. Right. So I'll, I'll take the, the China question. I was actually surprised by the result on the Japan. So we asked um, if uh, there would be support for the use of force if uh, China initiates a military conflict with Japan over disputed islands. And only 33% of millennials favored that. Uh, which is pretty low relative to the other answers. In fact, I think it's, the, it's one of the three lowest uh, uh, responses. Okay. Um, as opposed, but, but again, uh, no American cohort actually favored it as a majority. Right. The highest is 48% of the silent generation. Uh, and again, I think that relates to my previous question about, about structure and its effect on public opinion. Fighting a war with China is unlike anything that... that Millennials, Gen Xers, and Boomers have had to yeah. deal with, right? Yeah. And, uh, and so I think that there, there's a kind of uh, fairly rational public. Now, that doesn't mean that, that there might be conditions under which you might want to fight China, but the fact is, is that people are fairly wary about that scenario. And what's amazing is how low that is, given that a lot of times there's a kind of expressive desire to say the right thing in surveys. Mm -hmm. And so that's like the question earlier about... Um, some of the, the other issues, um, uh, the softer issues, like humanitarian intervention. A lot of times you might say yes to that because 
there's a range of things. It could be from genocide to a small civil conflict that you might want to get involved with. And so you might favor saying, yes, we should do something about it. But then when the costs come in, a lot of times American public sours on something they think might be the, a good thing or the right thing. Right. You think about Somalia, a lot of Americans supported going into Somalia to help open up the spigots in terms of food aid. Right. But then when Black Hawk Down happened, you saw lots of people running for the exits. Um, and so, again, it's surprising how low this is on China. And the, the survey does speak more generally to attitudes towards China as a threat or as, you know, a, mm -hmm. as a trading partner and things like that. Yeah. Dina, could you comment a little bit on the, Paris, the climate question and the Paris question? Absolutely. So they're actually two different questions, so they're not directly comparable. The, the question about the threat of climate change, that's a, a battery of a, a long list of items, and we say, is it a critical threat, an important but not critical threat, or not a threat. So we only showed the critical threat in that. So they see terrorism as a more critical threat than climate change, but they still see climate change as an important threat. Um, the other question just said, do you favor or oppose the Paris Agreement? Of course, that was before we pulled out of the Paris Agreement, so those numbers might also go down. But over time, Americans are becoming more concerned about climate change. Very good. All right. It is. It is, in fact, 12.30 and not, in fact, 6.15. Um, uh, thank you all very much for coming. Please join me in a round of applause for our panelists. Um,